Hi folks, a quick announcement before the show today. First up, events. We've got three events coming up and they're all in person. I think I said earlier in the year that this was going to be the year of the face-to-face catch-up and it certainly seems to be going that way. So, Thursday the 13th of June, this is for you Brisbane friends. So the Brisbane Take On Board Meetup will be on Thursday the 13th of June, an informal gathering of listeners, program alumni, friends and connections. It's a free event, so come along. Next up, the 18th of July, this is for our Warnable and Great South Coast Take On Board Friends, an event run in conjunction with Leadership Great South Coast and Bernadette Northeast. Governance, from fundamentals to advanced practice. Super early bird tickets for this event close on the 10th of June, so get on it. Then the third event, a bit further down the track, the 22nd of August. This is for our Sydney friends, a Take On Board meetup in Sydney. Details of all of these events are on my website. There's a link to that in the show notes and I would love to see you at one or all of them. And a second quick announcement, a shout out to the new Take On Board Kickstarter alumni, Alex Cuthbertson, Anne Wallington, Audrey Umity, Ebony Worth, Emma Bonser, Helen Rizzoli, Julia O'Reilly, Kath Harris, Leah Bramhill, Nisha Amanala, Susan Fitoza and Yaz Volra. What an incredible group of people. I cannot wait to hear about the next steps that you're taking to the boardroom and I have no doubt you're all going to make an amazing contribution. Okay, that's it for today. Now, on with the show. I remember one particular case, the doctors were talking and talking and talking. Honestly, must have gone on for about 40 minutes and I hadn't said a word and I just said to them, this is a page one story if we do not do something about this today. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking to Moira Weir about the role of women and gender in the boardroom and in decision making. First, let me tell you about Moira. Moira is on the boards of Scope Global Proprietary Limited, Oikumeni Foundation, Hen House Co-op, which I looked up earlier and looks fascinating, and Collab for Good Proprietary Limited. Her list of previous boards includes the Medical Board of South Australia, South Australia Fire and Emergency Services Commission, Southern Domestic Violence Service, Norlunga Community Legal Services and Volunteering South Australia and Northern Territory. Moira has worked from the kitchen table to the cabinet table and started her board career as a 19-year-old youth volunteer representative on the Service to Youth Council Board. She currently serves on the board of Scope Global Board and is a ministerial appointment to the Entrepreneurship Advisory Board in South Australia. Moira received an AM, Order of Australia, in 2019 for her community service to South Australia. 
Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Moira. Thank you, and it's really great to be here face to face. Woohoo! This is, I'm hoping, Take On Board listeners, you can hear the difference in the audio for this one and probably the last 20 or 30 that you've heard. We are face to face, and not only has Moira been from the kitchen table to the cabinet table, we're now sitting on the couch, which is glorious. And a great place to have a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So, Moira, before we talk about gender in the boardroom and decision-making, let's dig a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell me a story about young Moira that tells us a bit about how you got to where you are today? Oh, great question. I think probably... I could pinpoint my um, desire for leadership (laughs) and organising others from when I was a brownie. Like, I was a sixer. So those of you who are familiar with that uh, paramilitary organisation of Baden-Powell's, I was six. And when you were six, you were in a sixer, which meant there were six people, the person who was the sixer, which was me, and five others. And when I look back now, I think, Maybe that's when I started my organising and uh, helping other people connect. And so part of my job in those days was to help everyone, all of us, get our badges and work out which badge we wanted to go for and all that kind of thing. So it's only been in recent time when people have been asking me, you know, to go back and look over your life. You know, what? when did you start doing those sorts of things? And I'm kind of reclaiming my brownie identity now in my 60s. (laughs) Oh, my God. How fabulous. So, as a sixer, so there's six of you in the group? Yes. And is the sixer, is that a particular role? Oh, yes. It's it's the person who is organising the six of us. And so, while it is a leadership and has responsibilities, it's also a peer role because we're all the same and... And, but we t- sort of take our directions from, uh, well, in those days, the person's identity was Brown Owl, and you never knew her name. And I do think that it was also such a formative time for me because it was all women in women in leadership mm-hmm. and women self-organising and women supporting women, girls supporting girls. Now, I had no idea, obviously, at that tender age that that may well set me on a course, but I'd I truly think when I look back over my life now that those seeds of sharing, taking responsibility for one another, working together in collaborative ways, teamwork, looking to older women for mentoring and support, looking to my peers to help us all get to where we needed to go, actually all of those lessons were there in brownies. Oh, how fantastic. I think I wasn't a brownie, I confess. I think I suspect my mother thought, oh, we're not sending you off for just that cooking and sewing stuff. And I know there was so much more to it than that, but I think that's how my mother saw it at the time. But you hear over and over again of young women and girls who have been involved in girl guides or other organisations like that. It's fabulous. And I, I did some mentoring a few years ago for a girl guides governance program that they had for young women to get them involved in boards and so on as well. So... Well done you, Sixer. (laughs) And I think it also was um, the source of my real interest and uh, appreciation of global citizenship. So, you know, one of those first activities you do is get to learn all the 
flags of the world and then you collect stamps from all over the world. And while they just seem pretty benign activities as a, a young person, in fact, they helped me see from the word go that the world was bigger than just the little bit of it mm. that I was in. And um, my parents were great travellers, so I was first joined the Brownies in New Guinea and in Ley. And then um, we went to the UK for a couple of years. So by the time I came back to Australia and I was 11, I'd actually been a brownie in three countries. And that gave me an enormous cred uh, with the local group when I came back. But I didn't go on to guides. I went to guides for about two weeks and I hated it because it felt very competitive and it wasn't the same as being a brownie, and which I found a really collaborative, joyful, playful, um, really creative place. Leaping over, so you're a brownie and a sixer, no less. What about your first board? So, yeah, so my first board, I was 19, as I think you said in the beginning, and mm. that was with the Service to Youth Council here in South Australia. And in those days, SYC, as, our, as we know it locally, was essentially a service directed for to young people, particularly teenagers who, for whatever reason, were struggling to find accommodation or perhaps needing some support and they had a real interest in you know young people at the margins so you know the surfer culture the early punk culture that kind of thing and I was doing an undergraduate degree in psychology and politics and just thought it's going to take me forever to actually meet real people and so why don't I volunteer so I thought I looked around for what I was interested in which was youth work at the time and so I volunteered with Service to Youth Council. Firstly, they what I loved about it is they provided training. So we did a 12-week counselling service training, which was over the phone, phone counselling in those days. And then they trained us in to do drug education in schools and youth groups. And I felt like I was getting another tier of practice that the, my university education was so much more theoretical, but this was really practical. And so after a few months um, being there and uh, volunteering, they were renewing their board and they always had a youth representative on the board and the woman who was supervising um, the group of volunteers, she said to me, you'd be really good on that, why don't you have a go? And I said, oh, okay. I didn't really think anything of it and it was an opportunity really for me to learn how to bring the voice of the volunteers mm -hmm. to um, the decision makers and being young and naive and having nothing to lose and didn't, not knowing anything, it meant I just dived straight in. And um, But it gave me a huge opportunity to see right from the beginning the place of fundraising, of grant making, of the way in which decisions get made around what gets kept and what has to go and mm. all of that. So I was really, really grateful for that opportunity. So there was one youth rep on the board? Yeah. Is that how it worked? Which is, you know, great for diversity and diversity, you know, even when you said, I didn't know any better, so I just leaped straight in. I mean, that is fantastic experience for you, but it's also fantastic for everybody else around that board yeah. table to hear that voice and to have that experience. Yeah, definitely. And years later, you know, fast forward another sort of 20-odd years, 25 years, I was a CEO of Volunteering South Australia Northern Territory. And at that time, the state government at that time actually had a Young People on Boards program. And uh, so inevitably, we got two young people onto our board. And that was just great. It certainly did what you're, you're saying, that we all benefited from their perspective, from their naivety and from their courage and experience. It was just fabulous to have them there. 
Some of the listeners may have heard me say this already, but my first board was YWCA Victoria. And likewise, we had a requirement for four board members to be young women. And the requirement at the time was, I think it was 30 years and under. Mm -hmm. So four women, depending on how big the board was at the time, either half or a third of the boardroom were under 30. It was great, great for everyone. It um, should be more of it. And in fact, I've I've seen boards get more and more conservative over the last, you know, 20 years. There was much stronger interest in hearing the voice of younger people than I think there is now. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. Yeah, well, I'm really, I well, I just noticed when we, people are going to recruit, mm. they're, they're looking for people who have had a lot of experience in the field and also the relationship between what I'd call technical experience versus governance or strategic thinking. I think it's very easy to go for someone with the technical expertise mm. and miss out on the bigger thinkers. And uh, so I'm always encouraging people because I regularly get asked, oh, have you got any suggestions for someone to come on the board? And I know that I tend to look at who they've already got and then suggest people that they just don't meet mm. who they've currently got because the skills matrix which is very big in governance work these days I think is also missing some variables around diversity of thought also thinking about the lived experience of whatever those um, issues are that the boards are trying to manage and um, I see this a lot in uh, in particular in some of the startup boards and advisory boards that you know, they're focusing perhaps on one or two elements, you know, often their bottom line mm-hmm. or capital raise. And I'm always encouraging them to look at what their impact is, what are their impact measurements actually going to do. So why don't you get people that are going to help them stretch themselves into those kind of, you know, new horizons. Mm. Again, I agree wholeheartedly about the skills matrix Indeed, not just being a skills matrix, but, you know, what's needed in the boardroom overall. Yeah. And much more than I'm a lawyer and I can't imagine a a board made up of just lawyers would not be great. (laughs) And I regularly say, don't appoint a lawyer or an accountant on your board. You can hire that. Yeah. And that's a specialist skill. Mm. But, you know, there's all sorts of potential out there. So grab hold of some different thinkers, some creative thinkers, and don't be scared of different diversity of thought. And from your board experience, can you, is there an example or a story, I guess, around that diversity of thought coming out in the boardroom, bringing in some of those different thinking? Yeah, I think the, I've got lots, but one that just sort of really comes to me is from my own experience of being on the medical board. So probably 10 years ago, legislation changed uh, nationally and there is now a national medical authority but in those days it was uh, each jurisdiction had its own and in South Australia we changed legislation to have lay people appointed to all of the health related so the nurses board the medical board speech pathology up until then it was only those people with those professional backgrounds that were on the boards so when I turned up um, I know it was a ministerial appointment and I was asked to come onto the board because of the work I had done primarily with consumers and, and, you know, my social work background, as well as having a quite a long policy experience as well in the field. And I remember turning up and quite often we would have, in the olden days, telephone book-sized papers mm-hmm. to go through because we were also at the point of entry before a decision would be made for it to go to a tribunal if there was some malpractice. And I remember one particular case 
the doctors were talking and talking and talking. Honestly, must have gone on for about 40 minutes and I hadn't said a word and I just said to them, this is a page one story if we do not do something about this today because it will not pass to the barbecue test or the water cooler test or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, mm-hmm. the pub test, and I don't know why you're talking about it, it has to go to the tribunal. And it was as simple as that. And then everyone just kind of, you know, looked at me and thought, oh, my God, she's right. Mm. Because they were so caught up with the technical side of it. Some were caught up with their personal relationship with the person who it was because the medical profession really is a, um, a guild. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't had lay people ever before on the board. So I think that's a good example of... Someone who's, you know, literally the person on the street's perspective is actually really valuable, and, you know, to protect health and well-being of a whole state. And it's part of the role, in a way, of independent directors, because it's partly what I'm hearing from that is partly it's the different view, but it's partly you're not caught up in that world, mm-hmm. which you want some people who are caught up in the world of whatever it is that you are governing, but you don't want everybody caught up in that world. No, and I think, you know, what is governance? That's really... And who are we governing for? Um, why are we there? And so if somebody, you know, in a medical context has excellent technical knowledge, great. But not all decisions are technical ones. And, in fact, a board is that old adage of, you know, the board's there to uh, steer the ship, not to mop the decks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're steering the ship, you really do need to have a strategic vision. You have to be using the compass and the horizon and the steering wheel, not the bucket and the mop to get things moving. So so thinking about women and gender in the boardroom or women and gender in decision-making, I mean, we've touched on some of it in some ways already through diversity. What are some of your reflections about what's important What's key in that? One of the things, the culture, some of the cultural things, like I remember on early, early in my board life, various guys saying, gentlemen saying things like, you know, but women are so emotional. And can I tell you that the most emotional people on any board I've ever dealt with are men. Mm. Women actually I find much more rational I find them more than than men, and it's, I'm sorry, guys, you might be listening here, but from a gender point of view, they're more likely to rely on the evidence and, in my experience, more likely to test out that evidence against basic principles and values and hold the whole board to account to, um, you know, the founder's mission or mm. vision and using that as a tool to help them propel them forward to the next level. So that's definitely something I have noticed and I continue to notice that hasn't gone away in the 40 years I've been on boards. Another variable I think is that generally speaking, uh, women are going to ask questions that will be uncomfortable and partly I think that's because they are more experienced with what it means to be uncomfortable. And so it's not such a big stretch. They don't mind looking or being seen to be a bit disruptive because for most of them it's it's a thing to be there in the first place. So they're willing to take that step. The other thing I notice is if you've only got one woman on a board, it's kind of an exotic. 
once you've got two or three or it's 50-50, it changes everything altogether. And in South Australia, under the RAND Labor government at, from 2002, uh, we had in our state strategic plan for 50% women on government boards and committees. And that's fallen back in more recent time with changes of government. But that literally shifted the entire way um, decisions were made in the public authorities. And so some of those variables that I'm talking about disappeared, that they were invisible. But they are coming back. I'm on the few things that I'm on these days. I still, I notice the olden days re, uh, reappearing. And um, I'm always keen to uh, just uh, try and nip those things in the bud. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in Victoria, likewise, oh, probably four years ago, there was 50% of all new appointments to paid government boards would be women. And within 12 months, basically, there was 50-50 on boards. It, was, it changed incredibly quickly. But what that means is that it do doesn't necessarily take that long for things to change the other way as well. So sometimes when change happens quickly, yeah, it just shows it can be undone quite quickly as yeah, well. Yeah, you really have to make sure you're um, vigilant about it and mm. it needs to last more than just a term of government. It's, yes, yes. And it doesn't, hasn't made that much of a difference in the in the corporate sector. I mean, the Institute of Company Directors still haven't met their target, which was 35%. Mm. And um, I think that's very disappointing. I think it's uh, stupid, frankly. We know that if you um, have more diversity on a board, you'll have better results. One of the things I'll often say is, well, you obviously don't want to do the best by your shareholders. And that kind of upsets people. Um, but it sets the agenda pretty quickly about, well, what's getting in the way of you not appointing women onto your board or people, diversity, different backgrounds, all of those things. If people speak three languages, they're going to be thinking in three languages. That means they'll have a broader range of conceptual frameworks to draw on. Mm -hmm. And why would you not want to have your shareholders have access to that you know, critical thinking. It's a no-brainer to me. Absolutely. So what do you think is getting in the way? Because likewise, I'm, I'm equally flabbergasted that we can't even get to a third. And that's just in terms of gender diversity on boards, not even thinking about cultural diversity or age diversity or all of the other different levels of diversity on boards. What, what's getting in the way? Well, patriarchy, <laughs> <laughs> colonisation. You know, we just... I think it's as fundamental as that. Mm. And... I mean, I, I regularly get calls from people saying, oh, we want to appoint a woman to a board. Uh, we don't know any. And I go, are you serious? We have in South Australia, for example, the Winnovation Awards, so there's Women in Innovation. And so if there are startups or companies like that that ask me, I go, have you heard of the Winnovation Awards? In fact, one of your companies helped sponsor that. So why don't you just mm. look at the last two or three years' worth of winners yeah. and see who you can see that you already probably know? Do you have a Twitter account? Have you <laughs> you heard of this thing called Google? You know, like these aren't LinkedIn. I think it's patriarchy. I think it's lack of imagination. Mm. I think they because they don't know someone, therefore that person doesn't exist. And that's a very narrow world view. And, you know, I, I'm also really keen to um, provide opportunities for, for younger people, people from cultural diverse backgrounds, um, Indigenous people. But not all of that, not everyone wants to be influenced in that way and be on a board. And I think that's the value of having advisory boards, mm. uh, reference groups. There's all sorts of ways, just even in the design of your engagement, making sure that you're finding ways in which to get all the voices to be heard and some of the 
uh, not so usual suspects' points mm. of view get expressed and, and made visible. Absolutely. I um, could not agree more. It doesn't have to be in the boardroom. I think it is useful to have a diverse boardroom. I think that's a valuable thing. But it's not the only way to engage. Yeah. You don't have to put everyone in the boardroom. You can have different ways of doing that. Definitely. During your um, professional life, tell me about the role of mentors in your role, both as a mentor, because my punt would be you are a mentor to many, um, and also mentors for you. Yeah. I've been very lucky. I've had lots of fabulous people around me. And I've also had people who've taken me under their wing Mm. without me knowing that they were my mentor, (laughs) uh, who have seen something that they want to nurture in me. Mm -hmm. So one of my favourite stories was when I was on the Council of Churches, I was on a a subcommittee, which uh, we used to hold all the funds for the Christmas Bowl, which was a major fundraising event by all the Australian churches. And I had a kind of like an observer status because the church I was representing weren't members of the Council of Churches, Mm -hmm. but we were alongside of it. But I was a full participant in the meetings and um, I could see there was something not right with the... um, the numbers on the balance sheet, but I couldn't quite work out what was wrong. It just just didn't seem right. There was a trend I could notice. And one of the fellows from another church who I trusted, and I said, I think something's wrong, but you'll know, because he was, in those days, he was a very big deal um, public servant in one of the federal agencies. And so I thought, well, who can speak up? He knows what he's doing. He's been here for years. And uh, he said, no, no, you you speak mm. up. And I go, well, what, how am I? No one even notices me. I could, well, his instruction to me was get your little calculator out, which we, I took to all my meetings because it was money meetings. He said, just, you know, press all the buttons for a minute, take a deep gasp or, you know, and, and then scribble a number down and then do it again and then and take a sigh of relief at the end of it. And he said, probably by then everyone in the room will be looking at you and the chair will say, Moira, have you got something you'd like to share with us? And that's exactly what happened. Oh, my God. Um, fabulous. And I just – I give that – Harold, thank you if you're listening. Uh, it was great. Uh, it, was, um, it was a really good tip and – what it meant was it helped me understand that I didn't have to like, kind of raise my voice mm. or put on a turn of any kind, but there were plenty of ways to get attention. Mm. And to have um, that in my kit bag of tools to use was a really good early, early lesson for me. And all along the way, um, I had people who would, and still do, who people will put me forward for things or invite me to attend and challenge a conversation. Or So I've been very, very lucky. And then in turn, that's meant that in my mentoring, I've made sure that I can pass on the tips that mm. I, that things that helped me, and that I can also really listen to what the problem was. And so, in my example, it was because I could see something, but I didn't know how to describe it. Mm. But he didn't let that get in the way of me being able to have um, a voice. And I think that was a fantastic lesson to learn really early on, mm. and and one that I can help pass on to other people. Absolutely. Well, hopefully the people listening will take that on as well. I hope to see that in many meetings from now on. Yep, tapping away on the calculator (laughs) and then the sigh and the, I love it. Um, In fact, even just taking calculators to meetings. Oh, yeah, I I still do. Oh, I love it. I still do, yeah, and I... 
I mean, obviously now you're on your phone because it's quite a lot, you know, the digital means. But I still have my little pencil case. That's the other little lesson I I think I noticed you having one too. <laughs> but is. I do have my little pencil case and I like to take my pencils out. And usually I'm doodling or not doing anything with it. And even in this digital age where so many nowadays, you know, you get your board back, um, and, you know, a digital platform. Um, I still think it's useful to have a notebook with you and I still use a notebook when I'm in meetings to follow up things, particularly I'll, someone will say something and I'll think, well, it's not really for this meeting but I'd like to know a little bit more mm-hmm. about that and then I can follow it up with an email or a phone call or just you know, ask them something on the way back to the lift. Absolutely. I do likewise often end up with little margin notes. Oh, don't forget to check with so-and-so about this or whatever it may be. And... What about conflict? Like I'm imagining both in the boardroom but also probably in the work that you do as well, in and around that you've dealt with conflict, both been in it and around it quite a bit. And in fact, my view anyway is that conflict in the boardroom is a good thing as long as it's managed well. Yeah. So can you tell me how's conflict been managed well or been managed and what are some tips for dealing with that? Yeah, great question. I, If I'm chairing, I feel really comfortable with conflict mm. and I often will ask a question to uh, invoke some conflict or invoke some difference of opinion like, has anyone else got an alternative opinion? But when I'm a participant and I'm not chairing, I can be like the recalcitrant teenager and I can be quite difficult and say, well, hang on a minute, two seconds ago we said this and now we're saying that, so do we have a view? And I can. what I'm often trying to do is work out what our foundational principle is. Mm. And so for me in conflict, that's usually my go-to place to try and raise the whatever the contrasting points might be. So, because I find that sometimes conversations in boards can go round and round the mulberry bush Mm. and we miss out the principle that should be guiding us. So that's how I tend to manage that um, as a participant. But, you know, sometimes conflict is really hard and people need to, you know, take their... The, the conflict that they're having to manage outside of the boardroom mm. and get an external facilitator in. And sometimes I'm actually that person, sometimes in boards. And I certainly have been on boards when we've been requiring some external support to help us work through a really difficult situation. And and there have been difficult situations on many boards that I've been in over the years, things like decisions around um, investment, decisions around hiring and firing both board members and CEOs, hiring and firing executive staff, uh, who you might want to merge with or not merge with. I mean, those things will often be quite conflictual Mm. because of a range of views in the room and they do need really good management and leadership in discussion and sometimes that's not possible because whoever's leading it might be holding on very, very tightly or be overwhelmed by it and not be able to hold on tightly enough. Mm. And so I think it's perfectly legitimate to get some external support for those times. And if you're a board member, that you ask that of the chair, even if they might not support that to begin with, but just try and get to that point. And that's happened probably in half a dozen boards I've been in over the last 20 Mm. years. And I think having that being seen as a healthy thing, mm. as a almost as a measure of success in a way, because 
you know, linking it back to the conversation we were having earlier about diversity in the boardroom, mm -hmm. the more diversity you have in the boardroom, the more likely there will be that, maybe conflict's not the right word, but tension and healthy tension. Yeah, it's a dynamic. Mm. And I think if, if everyone's thinking the same thing, then the chances are you're not arriving to a decision that can be sustained for long... Be I mean, I always think if I'm thinking, trying to make a decision, will this last? If I got hit by a bus tomorrow, could it be overturned quickly or would it be able to last? And so the, the legacy piece is always in my mind... And, you know, and I say to people all the time, particularly hiring senior executives and CEOs, CFOs, you know, what's the succession plan? Not for just this hire, yeah. but for the next two or three. Mm. You know, are you looking to build your team internally? Are we looking to who do our collaborators are or to a national movement or whatever that might be and how are we supporting the entire ecosystem mm. so that we're getting good leaders everywhere, mm. not just in our boardroom? Because you really you know, in the kind of uh, world we live in, everything's connected. And so you do want a strong sector, whether, um, you know, it's in the not-for-profit world or in the corporate world. And in fact, all of these things overlap these days. So if you're serious about impact, you really want to find ways and next to build succession through the through mm. the whole ecosystem, not just the company or the business that you're working with. Oh, we've covered so many things here. What are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation we've had today? Uh, be brave. <laughs> mm. Feel free to ask questions. Trust your intuition. Like if you if it doesn't feel right, the chances are that you're probably right. Something's mm. not right. You know, don't second guess yourself. Get a second opinion. Say, look, this is what it looks like to me. Is that right? Or can anyone else verify that? And feel free to say that because there's nothing too silly. Or mm. And chances are that if you're thinking it, there's probably two other people thinking exactly the same or wondering. Yes. And, um, yeah, to be brave enough just to trust your intuition. And is there a resource you'd like to share with the Take On Board community? Oh, great question. I um, I always – there's a really old book called by Bob Garrett, The Fish Rots From The Head. Mm -hmm. I still refer people to that, the cycle of decision-making that's in that book. I think it's a really great resource. I don't think it's gone out of date or out of fashion. Mm -hmm. um, I'd still encourage people to do that and to watch that. And the other thing I always encourage people to do is to uh, watch Apollo 13 and you see them uh, caught in space and everyone's down on the ground in Houston trying to solve the problem and they're working together. And it's probably about a six or seven minute piece of the movie and I think it's the best example of teamwork mm. that you could ever, ever watch. And the way that the decisions are made the concept of improvisation, working with what they've got, having and in these days of remote working, how could be more remote than yes. floating around out of space <laughs> and being on the ground and then having the challenge of communicating that back and forth, I just think is um, it is a, a, still a world-class way of teaching teamwork. Oh, I love it. That's a resource that hasn't been suggested before <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, I will put links to both of those things Terrific. in the show notes. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your time and your lounge <laughs> with me today. Um, I don't know if I said it at the top of the podcast, but uh, I'm in Adelaide at the moment and I just put out a call on LinkedIn for whoever's in Adelaide to get in touch and to have this conversation with Take On Board. So thank you for literally answering the call and giving your time to us today and sharing some of your wisdom with us. It's much appreciated. No, my pleasure. Thanks, Kelly. Hi there, it's Helia. 
That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.